electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, is the consumer simply unflappable? Yesterday's CPI print showed inflation is still high. Today's retail sales numbers show consumer spending is still strong. The question is for how much longer? We'll break down the data and talk about what it means for your money. Travel is one area that's definitely going strong, and Choice Hotels just delivered a blockbuster report and guidance. The CEO joins us live with the key consumer trends and labor market trends he's seeing right now. And three big momentum stocks this year, Roku, Shopify, and Zillow. They're on deck to report. Will earnings pop the bubble or not? That's ahead in earnings exchange, but we begin with today's markets, and we're seeing some differentiation. Um, the Dow's up, uh, down, I should say, 144 points, so mostly lower here, a half percent for the blue chips, about a quarter percent for the S&P. The Nasdaq is green, though, by about a tenth of one percent. It's the only one kind of drifting in and out of positive territory. The Dow low today, minus 256. All three of these, though, still tracking for weekly gains at this point. Now, got to talk about energy. The worst performing sector today, we're getting more inventories putting downward pressure on oil prices. So WTI crude for its part around 78 a barrel. Devon, a disaster, uh, down 12% after earnings. Pioneer, Occidental, those stocks are also down almost 5%. Keep an eye on this. Remember, this is kind of the fly in the ointment about the risk on story. You could say, yes, it's oversupply, but don't don't those gluts tell us something about the broader economy as well? Yields continue to be a big story. Again, kind of different picture than what we're seeing in commodities. One-year yields hitting the highest level since July 2007. I think we poked above 5% at one point. Obviously, this was the big headline yesterday when those six-month T-bills rose above 5%. Two-year, 462. That goes back to the fall highs. And look at the 10-year, guys. We're just a hair below 3.8%. Um, this has been an incredible round trip. Started about these levels in January. We fell about half a percent and now we're quickly going back up. Keep an eye on the housing market as well means that we're going to see mortgage rates rise again, even as the building data has been quite strong. More on that in a moment. First, though, let's get to Rick Santelli to round things out for us. What is this bond market picture and story telling us today, Rick? You know, it's telling us that the market has taken in lots of new information since February 3rd's big jobs report, and it continues to assimilate more data, whether it was yesterday's CPI, which was Cooler than last month, but still historically high. And today, retail sales. Although I would caution that many are looking at some of these numbers and scratching their heads. And one of the reasons may be seasonality. Today's seasonally adjusted retail sales was quite strong. If you look at non-seasonally adjusted, it was much weaker. Now let's go to the charts. If you look at a 24-hour chart of 10s, you can clearly see we reached that 380, 381 resistance, backed up, but only a little bit. And if you look at a one-week chart, it's been climbing the ladder of higher yields pretty much every session. And if I was to take that back to Jobs Friday, it would continue to look pretty much like a staircase up higher. And if we look at how much time has elapsed since we traded these yields, 
You pointed it out. It goes to early uh, this year. And actually, if we were to close right here, it would be the highest yield close since December 28th. So we're at the highs of the year. And if you look at the 210 spread, which we've been looking at carefully, you know, it's been almost every day finding new historic inversions going back to the early 80s. Well, today it reached minus 91 and had a huge reversal, about 8 to 10 basis points. So we're not on pace for a new fresh inverted close. It's something to pay attention to, uh, especially how much it's bounced just in a couple of hours. And finally, the dollar index. You talk about an area that I've said many times is if you want to monitor what's going on with interest rates in our central bank, look no further than the dollar index. It's been following rates up ever since Jobs Friday. And right now it's on pace for a five and a half week high close. Back to you. Wow. 104 uh, on the dollar index. Another headwind to be mindful of. Rick, we'll circle back in just a moment, if you don't mind, after that 20-year auction. Meantime, let's bring in Nationwide Mutual's chief economist, Kathy Busjansen, who says this retail sales print will keep the Fed hawk circling. Diana Olick is here with those big numbers on the housing front this morning. And speaking of which, it's almost like he arranged it. It's the perfect day for Bill Smead to rejoin us. Is he sticking with the home builder stocks? Welcome, everybody. Uh, Kathy, let's just start with you and, and why you think this number is a big deal for the Fed. Hi, Kelly. Happy to be with you. Um, well, this shows that the consumer, which looked to be losing a lot of steam towards the end of last year, has actually uh, picked up steam. And, and really, the overall economy is, is really accelerating. Um, and, and it does harbor back to the employment report, right? So we had tremendous job gains, but also the number of hours that people were working, it, it increased three-tenths of an hour. So all workers working more and still seeing moderate wage gains. That means there was a lot of income uh, for the households that was generated in January, and, and consumers responded. They went out spending. Um, and this is just really the good side of, of the equation. There's a little bit of services here in retail sales. Right. Uh, but we know service activity has also been strong. So you know, net net, we're looking at real consumer spending that could be near five percent for the first quarter, and GDP growth that's three percent. So that, which is shocking, because a lot of the current estimates we're talking about half a percent or even declines of, of half a percent. So you're kind of extrapolating this out. What happens, Kathy, if this is just filling the hole that we created in November and December? Well, it's always tough to tell because this is, you know, with, especially in the post-COVID period. Um, not only do we have odd cross winds. But as you mentioned earlier, seasonal adjustment factors have really been thrown off quite a bit. Um, but I think what we're, we have seen is across the board, this this pickup, um, it's, it's not likely to be sustainable, but it's certainly going to catch the Fed's attention. You know, not only is economic activity stronger, but inflation remains really sticky on the service side of the equation. When you look at the super core services, right, even when you strip out rent. So I think this means the Fed has to do more and you're probably looking at it, a rate cycle that uh, continues at least through June. And you're talking, you know, five and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, if not higher. Five and a half percent. OK, people are going to start to say, look, if five and a half is on the table, you could even start to go higher. I mean, if we don't see decelerations in the coming months, does that really make sense to you, though, Kathy, when you look at the forward momentum, the leading indicators and all the rest of it? Can we stay in a production recession without eventually seeing employment slow down as well? Well, our view has, has been that the economy was going to slow down. And that is still our view, because we think one way or the other, the Federal Reserve will ensure that happens, because they don't want uh, inflation pressures remain this high. Uh, but you're right. Um, although the manufacturing data this morning 
um, showed a rebound there as well. So it, and, and then maybe housing is starting to get at least some footing. So there's some concerns here that maybe the Fed hasn't done enough. But I think you're right. It's 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 not. It, it's hard to pick the terminal rate, but we shouldn't just be doing a guessing game at that. I think maybe what's even more important for the Fed is that once they get to a certain level, they hold it there throughout for for a longer period of time. Right. Usually when they pause six months, nine months later, their cutting rates this time could be different. Well, and it wouldn't be the first thing that's a little bit weirder this time around. One final question. You know, all of the January data has been so much stronger than expected. Is it possible that we move into February, March, and suddenly there's a big reset because maybe we don't have seasonals or warmer weather or whatever it was? I mean, do you think this one month is an aberration possibly? It is certainly possible. Um, seasonality factors are large with employment, retail sales. Um, and, and also, if you think about it, this was really touched off by strong employment gains. With an unemployment rate that's 3.4, you can't continue to churn out 500,000 new jobs each month unless we get this True. big resurgence in, in labor supply. And that doesn't seem likely. Right. It's literally mathematically impossible at some point. We just didn't think it was going to be the supply side uh, slowing things. Kathy, thank you. We appreciate it. Kathy Bosjancic. Let's bring Rick Santelli back in, see how that 20-year bond auction went. The last one we had, Rick, was I think that D. So let's see if demand's a little bit firmer now. Yes, it improved markedly. Once again, uh, auctions are going much better. This one was a B as in boy. Let's go through it. Uh, we're talking 15, one, 5 billion, 20-year bonds. The auction went off at 3.977, just a bit, just a bit below, excuse me, above the when issued market, which was 3.975. So it priced about right. You could say it tailed just a smidge. Uh, all the metrics were very close to 10 auction average. The two that I really want to mention are uh, indirects, a favorite of yours. Uh, so we see foreign buying was fairly strong, above 10 auction average, and dealer takedown was below. So all the metrics were pretty good, a solid B. And if we continue to monitor this demand, it really flies in the face of the notion of how aggressive interest rates have been, not only here but abroad, which means that many traders seem to be looking a bit beyond this chapter and seem to hold some hope, at least, based on these current positions and purchases, that yields are close to an extreme. Rick, do you, you. do you think, Rick, it's possible that the January data is going to end up being a, a head fake or an aberration? Uh, I think there is a good chance, and today's data is case in point. I went back to the tables and took the raw retail sales data. Headline, X-Autos, X-Autos, and gas. And in all three cases, non-seasonally adjusted, they were all weaker much weaker, actually, than the seasonally adjusted. Now, I'm not saying we need to mix our metaphors halfway through the game. I'm just saying that COVID, pre-COVID and post-COVID changed so many things in our global uh, financial fabric that many of the issues that cause and pick up seasonalities may have changed. And ultimately, that might be one of the culprits and why we all scratch our heads, whether it's labor or the strength of the consumer at this point in time. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, well said, Rick. Thank you very much. Rick Santelli. Let's turn now to the housing story you've started to hear about a huge home builder sentiment reading today. It just improved by the most in a decade of uh, a breaking news on mortgage rates could throw some of a wrench in that. Let's get to Diana Olick. Diana. 
Well, Kelly, mortgage rates are on the move higher again, especially today, and I'll get to that in a second. But first, the home builders are largely positive on the day, thanks to a strong report on builder sentiment, which rose for the second straight month, up seven points on the NAHB's index to 42 in February. Anything below 50 is still considered negative, but it had been as low as 31 just two months ago. This is the highest level since September and the biggest monthly increase in sentiment since June of 2013. Of course, sentiment was at 81 in February of last year when mortgage rates were much lower. But rates are now lower than they were last fall, at least. Of the index's three components, everything was up. But the biggest one was sales expectations in the next six months, up 11 points to 48, which is just edging up toward that positive territory. It is all about mortgage rates right now, which came off their highs of last October when the 30-year fix jumped over 7%, came down after that sharply in January, hitting 6%. But in the last two weeks, it's up again, especially in the last two days with the CPI and retail sales. And in fact, a 13 basis point jump today to, dare I say, 6.75%. That hit mortgage demand last week. Refis dropped sharply, sharply as expected, and even demand from home buyers dropped a bit, despite other signs that buyer demand is rising in an early start to the historically busy spring market. Tomorrow, of course, we'll get the January read on housing starts and see if builders are putting some of this new optimism to work. But with rising rates, Kelly? Sure. It was just what we were talking about with Andy Walden yesterday, almost spooky. And you have to imagine some buyers going in with the mentality of rates being off their highs and all of a sudden looking at it and going like, oh, my gosh, how do we get back up here? Yeah, I mean, it's really surprising how much in the last week they've come back up. And you had that sort of emotional 7%. And folks I spoke to at an open house over the weekend said, well, we're way down off those highs. Right. Well, guess what? We're inching back up again toward them. Yeah, we got to go back to the open houses now this weekend. <laughs> you know, how well, I wanna, how is <laughs> Thank you, Diana, very much. Our Diana Olick. And my next guest is a longtime bull on the home builder trade, owning names like NVR, Lennar and Horton for nearly a decade. Bill Smead is here. He's the chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management. And this was a coincidence, Bill. It couldn't have worked out better for you. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. So, you know, I mean, we've dwelt on this a lot, but what's funny is back, you know, nine months ago when you were pounding the table for the builders, no one wanted to hear it. Now they all want in because the stocks have done so well. Would you would you have them proceed with a little caution? Oh, of course. Uh, you know, our belief is that the, the, the economy is going to be better than expected. No one ever mentions, and, and by the way, Diane's reports are fantastic, but there are 40.5% more people 25 to 40 right now than there was 10 years ago. So you've got 40.5% more humans that might want to buy a house out of necessity. And by the way, that's the key word in, in what's going on in the economy it is necessity. Because we lived for 09 to 19 in a world of discretionary spending. And necessities like homes and cars were not a big subject because the largest adult population group hadn't been kicked into gear. But they've been kicked into gear now, and they need a home. And you behave dramatically different when, when you need a home yes. than when you just want a home. And, and that's the, you know, more marriages last year and this year. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and, and Diana hit on this, it's great. The spread between the 10-year the Treasury interest rate and the mortgage rate has been hanging around two and a half to three percent uh for a number of months and the historical relationship is more like 160 basis points and the reason 
that there's that relationship is a pool of 30-year fixed-rate mortgages in a Ginnie Mae pool, for example, have an average life of 11 years. And Rick will back me up on that. So what that means is people have been being charged an artificially high rate as the Fed tightened credit, even though a recession would, would make that spread come in. And so that's why we've been in such great shape. The stocks were hellaciously cheap. People didn't understand them. The spread was working against them as much as possible. No wonder they didn't have any optimism. Sure. But when they get what everyone in the industry has left over PTSD from 04 through 014. And so they're all worried about going in the tank again when it's hard to go in the tank when you've got all these people that need a house. You know, you're still a stock picker at heart. And I mentioned some of the builders that you own, NVR, Lennar, DR Horton. Uh, would you caution people against owning something like the home builder ETF here? And what if, Bill, what if you're wrong and the economy does slow later this year? As you know, I, 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 I wonder about this a lot. And, and what would you tell someone who says, OK, what if we do roll over more uh, more than you're anticipating? Well, we have another kind of economic stat, I think, Cole has been the guy that, that, that led the charge on this thought. People at average and below average incomes are seeing a substantial increase in their pay. We see it all over the place. Whatever business you interact with, they're, they're begging to find truck drivers, waitresses, cooks, you name it. Everywhere you go, they're begging for good people to come and work at much higher incomes. The people that own the common stocks had been making roaring money for 10 to 12 years in what Charlie Munger called the biggest financial euphoria episode he's seen in his career by the totality of it. So just because your stock portfolio goes down 20%, well, you've quadrupled it in the prior 10 years. So the high-end people are spending. You had to come to Phoenix last week to see this. You had the Super Bowl here and the Phoenix Open, record crowds at the Phoenix Open, people spending money like crazy, record people coming to town for the Super Bowl and everything that went with it, and they were spending money like drunken sailors on leave. So, so you got high-end people, you got high-end people spending money, and you've got uh, people, average people and below-average income people seeing their wages go up. I, it, it's hard to visualize. Now, let me add one more thing. As you the, add the, that, and I Federer's, want, Bill, here's the best part. Yeah. We have like a, a minute left, so I'm going to throw even more at you to answer this last question. Okay. And can you just address yeah. energy? You know, Devon's a disaster today. Inventories are rising. Everything that you're talking about would argue for more spending uh, in the hands of a large segment of the population that needs gasoline and so forth. Why is oil behaving so bearishly? And what about the energy stocks? It, it, it's just the normal nature of a long-term bull market, secular bull market in a set of stocks. They, they have a good run, then they get a sharp correction, kind of scare everybody out. Uh, what you've got is the Chinese are coming on. Uh, President Biden now is gonna have 300 million barrels to buy, not 250 before he gets done. Uh, he's short oil and, and the companies are being dissuaded from poking holes in the ground. By the way, our next favorite topic that we're going to share with you is Boone Pickens used to say in the 1980s, it's cheaper to drill for oil on the New York Stock Exchange than it is to drill for oil. And that's where we are right now between the large oil and gas companies wow. and the medium size and the small ones. All Get right. ready. Strap so yourself in. Undaunted optimism and, and sort of um, sticking with your, your core portfolio trades. Bill, by the way, Munger is speaking right now. Daily Journal meeting. He's 99 years old. Parting thought. 
that's my next project to go listen to Charlie Munger. You've we got, love Charlie. You got to get Bill. It's, we might have one more year. I don't know. Uh, you know, I said that seven years ago. Uh, Irving Kahn, Irving Kahn passed away at 103. Uh, he was one of the group of Buffett's guys that got together that went to Columbia together. Wow. And he lived to be 103. So uh, Charlie knows to not go where he's going to die. Remember, he says, don't <laughs> he go. Does. Find out where you're going to die and don't go there. Exactly. Bill, thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate it. It's great checking in with you today. Today of all days, Bill Smead. Coming up, Choice Hotels up 3% on the back of strong earnings and guidance. The CEO joins us live with what makes him so bullish that the consumer will keep spending on travel. Plus, Roku, Shopify, and Zillow zooming higher this year. And on deck with results, we'll get you set up for all three in today's earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. The Nasdaq's still positive by a quarter percent. Same for the Russell small caps. Dow and S&P slightly lower, and the 10-year yield has cracked 3.8%. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The travel trade holding up strong with no signs of slowing down just yet. Shares of Choice Hotels up more than 3% today and nearly 15% since Jan 1 after they posted a big beat on the top and bottom line and issued strong guidance for the quarter and the year. They own brands like Quality Inn, Quality Inn, Econo Lodge and Mainstay Suites. And joining me now in an exchange exclusive is Pat Patius, the CEO of Choice Hotels. Welcome back. It's good to see you. Great to see you, Kelly. So I, I almost wish I had talked to you before the retail sales report, because what would you have said is the strength of the consumer or what trends you're seeing in January? Well, they have a trillion dollars of additional spend capacity today than they did even pre-pandemic. So the consumer is in a very healthy state. We're seeing it in our business. You know, when we look at 2022, the revenue per available room grew every quarter, and we've seen it straight into January of this year. The consumer is prioritizing travel at the top of their list. They're out and they're traveling. They're also traveling at different months of the year. Our fourth quarter numbers were exceptionally strong, huh. up 20% in RevPAR. And they're traveling at different days of the week. So we saw occupancy gains for every single day of the week, particularly on the shadow or shoulder days, rather, of uh, the weekend. So that's both Thursday night and Sunday night. 
we saw 4% increase in occupancy when you compare it to our pre-pandemic levels. So we're really seeing the consumer out and traveling, and they're in a very healthy state today. So this is, I figured it out. I figured, this, this is the mystery. We've solved it because in November and December, we had unusually weak spending on kind of goods and retail sales and, and holiday. And you're now telling me you had unusually strong demand in that period. Is that right? That's right. And historically, before the pandemic, the fourth quarter and the, and the first quarter of the year were generally lighter on leisure travel, more heavy on business travel. We saw gains in both segments. The consumer leisure travel demand segment, that entire pie is getting bigger. It's getting bigger because people have more money to spend with rising wages. We have more folks who can wor work remotely. We have retirements occurring at sort of significant rates higher than we were pre-pandemic. And then when you look at the business travel, for our segments in this mid-scale and extended stay world where a lot of our hotels exist, you're seeing the reshoring of American manufacturing and the infrastructure projects hmm. really start to impact that blue-collar traveler who is traveling during the middle of the week. So we're really seeing growth in leisure and also a return of that business travel for our I mean, segments. It's like you should have given the State of the Union. I mean, I, I feel I feel great after listening to this. Maybe I have to junk my, you know, my recession calls. I guess the, the thing I would ask you is on the labor piece of things where to the point you're making about the strength, is that a, a profit margin risk? You know, is that unsustainable? And, and how is that affecting business? Well, I think when you look at labor in the hotel sector, we are still behind. We were behind. We had a number of open jobs even before the pandemic hit. Uh, we did see a lot of labor come back into our into our segment uh, this past year. Um, when you look at our hotels in particular, we are primarily limited service hotels. So we don't have a lot of um, you know big restaurants and meeting space and amenities. And so from a labor perspective, limited service hotels have been able to hold up fairly well in a, in a market where, where labor is more challenged. That being said, our housekeepers, our front desk folks have gotten a raise, as have most of sort of the middle class and, and, uh, and that segment of workers. So those are the folks who actually travel in our hotels as well. So it's good to see that they're getting a pay raise. Yeah, I hear Bill Smead, if he's still watching, going, see, I told you. He, we got to ask him why he doesn't uh, invest in choice hotels. It's totally part of his thesis. Uh, Pat, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Pat Pacious, CEO of Choice Hotels. Coming up, a week after Chipotle missed on earnings, revenue, and same-source sales, the company is betting on a new cuisine. Will it be a catalyst for growth? We have the details ahead. And as mentioned, here's one for your second screens. Charlie Munger speaking right now at the Daily Journal annual shareholder meeting. CNBC.com is live streaming the whole event. Becky Quick is moderating. We'll bring you any big headlines we get in the next hour or two. Stay with us. The Exchange is back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
Welcome back. Markets holding up reasonably well after we've had such strong data. You've heard our economists top of the hour saying maybe five and a half percent for the terminal Fed funds rate. Uh, Dow's off the lows. It's also off the highs. We're down 92 points. The Nasdaq up a third of one percent. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. The uh, white supremacist who murdered 10 black people in Buffalo in a supermarket there has been sentenced to life in prison without parole. 19-year-old Peyton Gendron cried as friends and families of some of those killed testified about the impact of those deaths and then made a brief statement saying he doesn't want anyone to be inspired by the terrible thing he did. I'm very sorry for all the pain I forced the victims and their families to suffer through. I'm very sorry for stealing the lives of your loved ones. In Texas, meantime, Austin City Manager Spencer Kronk was fired by the city council for the slow and confused response to the Texas ice storm this month that left thousands of people without electricity for a week or longer. And the federal judge overseeing FTX's bankruptcy has denied a Justice Department motion for a new independent investigation into the crypto exchange's collapse, saying it would duplicate what the company's new management is already doing. Kelly? Back to you. All right, Tyler. See you soon. Thank you. Coming up, options in Roku imply a 16% move when it reports after the bell. Shopify shares climb more than 66% in the fourth quarter, and Zillow has missed earnings only twice in the past five years. Incredible. We'll get the action, the story, and the trade in all three names on Earnings Exchange next. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get to today's earnings exchange. We've got the action, the story, and the trade for three names reporting after the bell. And we'll start with Roku, who's up 8% today. Shares are up 50% to start the year. Of course, they plunged 82% last year. They've beaten the street on EPS and revenue estimates. Get this, in 17 of the past 20 quarters. It's almost like earnings don't matter. Let's get to Julia Borson. She's got the story here. And Danielle Shea has our trades today. She's vice president of options at Simpler Trading. Welcome to you both. Julia, why are they up to 10% uh, rally now today? Yeah, I mean, this is a very volatile stock, Kelly, and there's so many questions here. The company's revenue growth is expected to decline by 7%, and earnings are expected to swing to a loss from a gain in the year-ago quarter. There are so many questions and also potential uh, areas of growth. Investors are really looking for insight into the overall ad market. Is there going to be a contraction? And how much could Roku suffer from the fact that some of the big ad platforms, sorry, some of the big streaming platforms may not be investing as much in ads, but there also could be an opportunity in opening up the Roku ad platform to some of the ad tech players to drive more ad sales. So I think that's going to be a key area investors are focused on. And also remember, Roku is making a television set. So there'll be some interest in whether or not that could improve profitability. Interesting. Danielle Shea, all three of these names I'm a little worried about with you. What would you do with Roku? So, Kelly, when you're looking at Roku, the fact of the matter is, is that over the course of the past several quarters, they've gotten crushed on earnings. But what you're seeing in the stock market today is you're seeing the likes of Airbnb. You also have Roblox rallying. And investors are buying into these names that have gotten trashed. So for that reason, even though I don't like Roku, I wouldn't short it here just because I think that there's a high probability that it trades a little bit higher on earnings. 
In fact, if it does trade a little bit higher up into the $70, $75 price point, I think that if we can find some resistance, that would be a good place to come in and short it along with the trend. Fascinating. Why do you think, Danielle, that all of the, I, I hate to use the term, but it's so appropriate here, dash for trash. I mean, these aren't trash. Uh, these are just, I mean, what is going on with this move in, in these kinds of stocks to start the year, do you think? Well, you know, Kelly, I think that investors are looking at what happened in 2020. The market tanked in 2020 and those that came in and bought the dip, they made a lot of money, right? And so I think that investors have had money on the sidelines for a long time. They've been wanting to put it to work. And then when companies like Airbnb and Roblox come out and they have a few positive things to say, they're putting their money to work in these stocks. So I think that that's what we have to look out for. There are gonna be companies that are going to come back, but there's also gonna be the losers that will never see the price points they were once trading at. Right, and it's amazing that there are a lot of, there is a lot of interest now in saying, okay, maybe here are, here are some names that are gonna make it. Uh, thank you, Julia. Let's turn now to our next company, Shopify. Those shares also higher into the print this afternoon, but like Amazon, they also got crushed in 2022, down 74%. Kind of same story here as Roku. Their shares are up 51% this year. Kate Rooney, what are we watching? Yeah, Kelly, and it fits into what Danielle was just talking about, that theme of some of these money-losing companies. Wall Street, though, today for earnings around Shopify, looking for any effects of sort of this e-commerce slowdown we've seen, macro environment, any sort of recession could really hit smaller businesses which Shopify really relies on. And so with that in mind, watch merchant and e-commerce growth. That tends to be measured in what they call GMV or gross merchandise volume. And Q4, the quarter we're going to get today, was Shopify's holiday season. So it's typically strong, but we had Amazon and PayPal that came in a little bit light. So that's got analysts, and some analysts at least, lowering targets. Any talk of competition, speaking of Amazon, which has rolled out this buy with Prime product, uh, Shopify also appointed a new CFO and COO, so the tone on the call will be important since these are pretty new executives. And then Shopify had this major change to pricing on subscriptions, at least raising prices. That has really helped the stock and seen as a good thing for at least the top line. But this company still not profitable. Well, Diane, Kate, thank you. Danielle, would this be a similar story where you like it up to, you know, a, another resistance point or is this a different story? Yes, Kelly, this one is a similar story, but I actually think that Shopify is doing a decent job shifting off of the lows. You can see on the technical pattern, the way that they've shifted as it relates to the trend. But what I also like about this company is the way that they reacted last quarter on earnings. Last quarter on earnings, they gapped up 6.8% and exhibited a breakaway gap. And the stock hasn't fallen back down to the price point that it was prior to last quarter on earnings. This is typically a really bullish pattern. And so while I don't think that Shopify is going to reclaim its all-time high at any point in the near future, I think that traders can at least make money another 5 to $10 higher in this stock and continue looking for overhead resistance zones. Because if they keep breaking, just continue trading it to the upside in the new trend. Wow. I, I, I'm sitting here going, what does this all mean? What is this all telling us? It, it, it's such so interesting. Uh, Kate, thank you. As we turn to Zillow now, our final trade of the day, those shares are up nearly 2% and on pace for their third week of gains in the past four, even with all these headwinds we just talked about. Unlike our first two names, it's actually expected to post a profit of seven cents a share in the fourth quarter. Diana Olick has more for us. And now, Diana, like we were just talking about, here come higher rates again.
I know, and as I was going to say, because of the mortgage rate story that we've been talking about, I'm actually more interested in Zillow's forward guidance than in their last quarter because I think everything is changing so dramatically right now. That said, we want to look at agent engagement because we probably lost a lot of agents in the last quarter. Are they coming back again with more engagement? Also, I'm interested in user engagement, clicks to Zillow, which they do report in their earnings, and see whether those have started to rise in January. Wouldn't be a part of the last quarter, but going forward, we want to see if people are coming back to the market. We're hearing about more Google searches from potential home buyers. So we want to see the clicks on Zillow and what that's happening. You know, Zillow, of course, got crushed because of its iBuyer business going down the tubes. Now they also announced a new partnership with Open Door. So I'd be interested to see what they have to say about that going forward and if that iBuyer program is going to benefit them, at least on the financial side. So a lot I'm looking forward, Kelly. Yeah, <laughs> it does feel like a, a, a useful barometer right now. Danielle, what would you do with the stock? Kelly, I like Zillow here. I think that Zillow is going to demonstrate that they had a good quarter. I think that investors and you know people who are waiting for interest rates to come down did start buying homes, looking for more homes over the course of the last quarter, just because we saw that dip in the 10-year. Um, and I think that they are showing a positive trend right now. They reversed the trend off of the lows. They have a nice bullish, at least near-term pattern. And they also have short interest. So you have some short sellers in that stock. If the report ends up being positive, you could easily see those short sellers being squeezed and giving us some more upside momentum. You know, so Danielle, I actually like this stock. I, yeah. Having the baby changed you. This is not the Danielle Shea that we all remember. The, I mean, I'm joking, of course, but is that how much the market has changed, you think, here? The, I mean, this is this is a very different feel than even literally what we were talking about this time a year ago. You were right then, and now I'm going, maybe she's going to be right now. Well, you know, Kelly, I always look at every earnings season and analyze the flavor of the season. Sometimes we're in a mood where when companies come out and they say, hey, you know what, we're not doing very well, their stocks get hammered like they were last year. This year, the flavor of the season is even if they're not doing great, we're seeing stocks rise massively. So I'm a trader. I trade momentum and I love following the trend. Also, of course, I have to look at those macro factors as well. But with Zillow, I love the nice near-term bullish trend on the stock. Yeah, and the clear ones as well, and all of these names, fascinating. Thank you both very much. Diana Olick, uh, we appreciate it. And that does it for this edition of Earnings Exchange. Still ahead, despite those disappointing results, Chipotle starting the year of strong up about 19%, and the restaurant is preparing to make a move it hasn't made since 2017. Those details next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Chipotle recouping and then some. The losses posted after that rare earnings miss. It's up about a percent over the past week, including today after the company announced a new spinoff. Pippa Stevens, our resident Chipotle correspondent, <laughs> joins us with the details, Pippa. Hey, Kelly. Well, Chipotle pioneered the healthy fast food restaurant, and now it wants to expand to a new kind of bowl. The company is testing out Farmesa Fresh, which will serve customizable bowls and operate out of a ghost kitchen in Santa Monica. Chipotle has tried and failed to move beyond the burrito before, including an Asian eatery and a burger joint. But today's announcement, broken by our own Amelia Lucas, is the first new restaurant announced under CEO Brian Nickel, who took the reins back in March of 2018. Formesa will soft open later this month, and the ghost kitchen model allows Chipotle to test it out 
on the cheap and see, Kelly, if there is demand for bowls with consumers. Come on over. Remind me again what type of cuisine this would be, the new? It's customizable bowls. So we hear customizable <laughs> bowls. We've had that for like a decade. That, that's not new. I mean, some people say we're at peak bowl. It right. feels, you know, you walk around New York City and it feels like there's a bowl joint everywhere. But the value of bowls is that you can very easily customize orders. You can change around the menu. You can really see what customers want. And we see this, you know, at, at, at Starbucks as well with frappuccinos, things like that. Customers love choosing, you know, what they're going to have, the mix. So, And you have to give Chipotle credit technology-wise. It reminds me a little bit of the Starbucks thing where they talk about how almost all of their orders now are order ahead and, and pick up. Mm -hmm. um, does it, though, tell us almost in some ways, again, that their best ideas at Chipotle aren't about the core franchise anymore, that they are perhaps about these kinds of spinoffs? Well, some people say that they should be focusing on that core trans uh, the core franchise, which is so strong. And now this kind of turnaround under Brian Nickel, the brand has a lot of power. And I sp spoke to one person who said, why not focus on international? Sure. And so there is that element that they don't really have that much of a footprint abroad. But I think with this, the idea here is that it's such an easy, it's an easy concept to, to think about, to launch. The ghost kitchen model means there's very low upfront costs. Cost, you don't have to have that storefront. The labor costs are a lot lower. So, so it makes sense in that regard. So it's then a delivery type of idea? Exactly. So you can go there, order at a kiosk, or have it be a delivery. So you don't have that dine-in option, which, again, reduces the overhead. It can be in a less ideal location. It doesn't right. have to be in a hot, bustling area because you don't have that dine-in. So that's kind of the capital, you know, capital light model to test this out. Yeah, I mean, delivery obviously raises its own. Look at the struggles Uber and especially Lyft have had on, on in terms of the man hours and the cost of that. But this would be... If it feels like at some point we have to get to this model, don't you agree? Where, I mean, why do they need prime real estate where it's even hard to park in some locations mm -hmm. to get there or suburban drive through locations? Why not be somewhere a little bit cheaper, especially for inflation? hit consumers, maybe offer them a better price point for what is still better food. I think what's interesting about this as well is that they're not associating with Chipotle right up front. So they're almost trying to kind of disassociate, which is an odd choice, perhaps, given that Chipotle is a very strong brand. But they want it, at least at the get-go, to be seen as something different, something new, something fresh, All right. you know, and different. you got to go try it. <laughs> That's it. That we got to report back. <laughs> Pippa, thank you very much. Our Pippa Stevens. Still ahead, a growing China divide in the latest 13F file. We'll talk about who are the buyers and who are the sellers of names like Baba and JD. It's coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. China taking its fair share of the headlines today. And just a few moments ago, it came up at the Daily Journal shareholders meeting with Charlie Munger. You can stream this right now live at CNBC.com, by the way. It's going to go on for another hour or so. Munger said you can buy stronger, better companies at better valuation in China than in the U.S. He's uh, repeated that in the past. And when asked about why he prefers Chinese automaker BYD over Tesla, he said BYD is so much further ahead of Tesla in China that it's, quote, Almost ridiculous. BYD shares down about 1% today, up 22% year-to-date. Tesla, as we know, up more than 70% since Jan 1. Now, among us bullish, recent 13F filings are showing more of a divergence of opinion among, among hedge fund managers on the likes of Alibaba and JD. By the way, Munger also mentioned on Alibaba he did use a little bit of leverage for that lately. And speaking of Tesla, it's hitting the brakes on production in China, looking to make way for an upgraded version of its Model 3 sedan. Billionaire investor Ray Dalio making waves at a conference in Dubai today saying China is winning the trade war if you just take the numbers, the percentage of world trade and dominance. Here to make sense of it all is Brendan Ahern, Crane Shares CIO. It's good to have you here, Brendan. Welcome. And uh, yeah, Munger saying Chinese companies are still a better value. What do you think? 
Um, and, and Charlie, we trust that certainly, you know, uh, Mr. Munger has an incredible uh, reputation. And I think I think what's important to recognize is, you know, Charlie is the boss. And for many investors, they have to in answer to their investment committees or their board of directors or end clients. And so so changing one's position, getting involved in China might be difficult for some people. And that's why our belief has been the pain trade is higher, that uh, Charlie Munger can do as he pleases. Other investors have to worry about political relationships and et cetera. Charlie can just get involved. And we think there's a lot more money on the sidelines still waiting to get involved on Chinese equities. You think that even after the latest filings? Because some people, it looks like, are heading for the exits. Well, I think you've seen um, a number of fast money, particularly hedge funds, have been very involved in the space that hedge funds don't marry their positions. They want to make money and they got involved in China very early, you know, caught, you know, in the case of K-Web, our China Internet, you know, it went up 96 percent. At the same time, there's a lot of data showing that long only managers of actively managed funds are still underweight China even after this rally, Kelly, and I think that's why this correction can be bought by a lot of investors, particularly in light of knowing that you've got all this China consumption is going to be such a big story this year. What is the valuation when you look at some of the leading Internet names? How does that stack up? I mean, think about this, Kelly. Uh, Alibaba is the number one holding of MSCI emerging markets value. Uh, that it's not wow. considered a growth stock. It's it's the number one value. And so so I think because of some of the political rhetoric, political tension, because of zero COVID, real estate concerns, a lot of investors kind of came out of Chinese equities. And as as China's economy proves that it's coming back online over the course of this year, you know, they're not going to want to buy PetroChina or ICBC Bank. They're going to want domestic consumption plays like Alibaba and JD and Pinduoduo and Tencent and others. Is BYD in uh, KWeb? It, it's not in KWeb. It's been a long time hold. Uh, we actually launched the first uh, EV ETF globally, cars, uh, really based on our experience of what we saw back in June of 2017 when China recognized that it had a pollution problem. So we created a global EV ETF. So we've been an owner of BYD. Uh, like Mr. Munger, who got involved back in 2009. I mean, it's just an, an remarkable if you think about Buffett and Munger, their vision, as well as their patience and holding this stock in the world, you know, didn't really figure out what they figured out up until a few years ago. Oh, sure. Everyone thinks they're dinosaurs who just own Coca-Cola. And it's like they got in on probably even a, a better trade. I mean, are, how familiar are you with BYD versus Tesla, Brendan? This is a hot debate among Tesla bulls trying to figure out what their uh, fortunes will look like in China. How far ahead is BYD, do you think? You know, B BYD is not selling thousands of cars or tens of thousands. They're selling tens of th hundreds of thousands of electric vehicles. And so so certainly Tesla has its place. Uh, you know, it's been a little bit of a luxury good uh, more expensive price point where BYD is creating really more for a broader mass market. So, so in many ways, you know, I think Tesla has its place. You know, we're believers in the company. Um, at the same time, you know, BYD because of that mass market appeal uh, has a great opportunity. No different than you know another player I mentioned, Kelly, CATL, which uh, probably yes. just got on the maps because of the Ford deal, but another, you know, it just happens to be a Chinese company, but very, very important company, another big holding in our cars ETF. Does it make me un-American if I, if I hold the cars ETF and, and I'm betting on BYD and, and CATL and all the rest of it? 
No, no. I mean, listen, as as you know, you know, as Americans, you know, you know, there's a lot of U.S. multinationals are doing great, not only in China, but doing in, in you know, across the world. You know, almost 20 percent of Apple revenue is coming from China or 25 percent of Tesla revenue. You know, GM sold two million cars. So so business people are getting along great with one another. You know, we're getting on planes and meeting with one another. And, and hopefully the two sides politically can start getting in on planes, talking to another one, hopefully take a page from the business world where people are getting along great. Right. It's just that whole balloon snafu, I guess, notwithstanding. Yeah. Uh, Brendan, yeah. thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Brendan Ahern with Crane Chairs. Let's get one more check on the latest headlines from Charlie Munger. He's singing Costco's praises once again, saying as long as they keep the faith with a strong culture and low markup policy, quote, I don't think there's anything that can stop it. And it's pretty close to a perfect damn company. The only drawback, it's trading at 40 times earnings. He went to say he loves Costco. He's a total addict and he's never going to sell a share. All right, coming up next on Power Lunch, shares of Generac up about 8% on better-than-expected earnings. The CEO joins us with where he sees the sales heading. And there's Tyler Mathis, a huge Costco fan himself. Maybe Generac, too. Uh, Get ready. I will see him on the other side of this break. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 